Well, I've done it each time, and uh, today is no exception. For the tenth time, I reveal to you another of my grandchildren. Uh, This is Peter Scott Burkle, who was born July 12th. Uh, you'll notice he has the hairstyle very similar to his grandfather's. That won't stay that way, I'm sure. But, um, you know, with the birth of each of my grandchildren, there are joys. Um, and there's also this question, and you've probably experienced this if you've had children or grandchildren. Uh, the, um, the question is, what kind of world will they inhabit? What kind of things are going to come their way? What will they experience? What kind of life are they going to have? And, you know, this is something that is true of, you look at any politician, we always uh, give the excuse for whatever it is they want to do by saying it's for the children, right? Um, And school administrators and teachers and just pastors, virtually every walk of life, one of the things that Uh, is common in people's minds and hearts is the thinking about the next generation. What is it that they're going to encounter? And here's the thing that's uh, kind of been uh, the burden of my heart as we're going through this series on the hope and promise of revival is that uh, anyone who will be a follower of Jesus Christ is facing a very uncertain future if there is not a heaven-sent revival to our nation and our world. That's the only hope we have. And so as I look at Peter's face, I think of both the challenge, but also the hope and joy of the idea of revival, which is why we are in Ezra. And I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 5. We are... uh, looking at this hope and promise of revival, and we're going to be thinking today about this idea that God is the one who starts revival, but he uses his servants who know him and how to work in this world to accomplish his purposes in revival. Uh, That it's really God who has the authority to start or stop revival. Uh, In chapter 4, what we had seen were some adversaries who had stopped revival, uh, stopped the rebuilding of the temple. There was a 10-year period of time under Cyrus and Darius uh, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and then verse 24. And then later on, there's a seven-year stoppage of the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem that's described in chapter 4, verses 7 through 23. Uh, In Ezra chapter 5, we go back to that 10-year stoppage and uh, that's described in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4. We go back to that stoppage and we see how the rebuilding starts up again, but not without its problems. Okay, so we're going to be going back to that first stoppage of the rebuilding of the temple and then we're going to see how it starts up again and some of the challenges that are faced, okay? So that's where we're headed. Please stand for the reading of God's word, Ezra chapter 5. We'll be introduced to a number of people here, and we'll do our best to describe who they are and what they do as we get through the message. Ezra 5, now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. 
Then Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel and Jeshua the son of Jozadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shetharbozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report, in which was written as follows, To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to, you, to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them for their names, for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now, it has been in building and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Please be seated. God starts revival. He uses his servants who know God and how to work in this world to start that revival. In these first five verses, we are going to see the courage to continue the pursuit of God. It takes courage to begin a revival process in our hearts. And that's what happened when they started to rebuild. But it takes even more courage after having been stopped in your pursuit of revival, to, to get back going again. It takes courage to continue the pursuit of God. Some of you may even notice this in your Christian life, that you would say, okay, I can track my Christian life kind of like this. Okay, I'm going like this, and then I go back down, and then I kind of stay here for a while. Why do you stay here for a while? Well, it takes courage to rebuild the to continue the pursuit of God. 
Now, in order to understand this, we have to understand both the history of what's going on here so that we can learn the lessons and the people that are involved so that we can be the people that God wants us to be. So we're going to go on a little history journey and then a little biographical journey, okay? First, the history journey. And I got dates here for you, but, you know, there will be no quiz at the end of the service. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel, remember Israel had been broken into two parts, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, after Solomon. And in 722 B.C., that northern kingdom fell to Assyria. The Assyrians conquered them, carried off peoples. Then, about 100 years later, in 626, Babylon conquered Assyria. Assyria was the great world government of the day, and they get conquered by the Babylonians. And then in 586, the southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by the Babylonians. More precisely, it happens in three attacks of Babylon on Judah, but ultimately it ends up in 586, the temple's destroyed, Jerusalem is broken down, Babylon has conquered the kingdom of Judah. And then in 539, Persia conquers Babylon, and in his first year as king, Cyrus issues a decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem, to Judah, and they can rebuild the temple. So the rebuilding begins, but in 530 BC, that rebuilding is stopped. We saw that last week in Ezra chapter 4, verse 5, and in verse, chapter 4, verse 24. It stopped for 10 years. Um, in that 10-year period of time, toward the end of that 10-year period of time, uh, Cyrus has died. There's a guy named Cambyses. There's another guy named Barhia. All of them are in the same family. A new sheriff is in town, new king. In 522, his name is Darius. He ends up being called Darius the Great, and he becomes the king of Persia. And after two years of his reign, he reissues a decree to rebuild, okay? And in that year, 520 BC, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesy as Darius has issued this decree to restart the rebuilding, okay? So that's our history to this point, okay? Now, we need to think about the men and women who are contemporaneous to Ezra that God uses to fan the flames of revival. And the first guy we need to know about is this Darius, Darius the Great, who was the king of Persia from 522 to 486. Um, In fact, this inscription, I'll show you in a moment the larger inscription. It's on a mountain, on the side of a mountain. It's massive, okay? It's just huge. You think that this little image is like this big. No, 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 it's massive. And underneath it, Darius has written this rather humble inscription, which is, I am Darius, the great king, the king of kings. (laughs) Now, it's fascinating, isn't it, how the, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it like the rivers of water wherever he wants it to go. Darius thinks he is an autonomous moral agent acting completely uh, autonomously and in self-control of everything. And at the whole time, God is working his will through Darius's life. Okay? 
Now, to understand a little bit of just how great this guy was, I want to show you this mountain. This is Mount Behistun, Behistun, I think it's pronounced. And you'll notice that there's this little outcropping or cut rock at the bottom of the mountain there. Do you see that? It's cut out. This is this inscription that that uh, relief was, uh, came from. And um, here it is from the bottom of it. You know, you're looking at the mountain and you're thinking, well, it's at the very bottom. Oh, no. It's up on top, not on top of the mountain, but you have to go up the base of the mountain a little bit to get to this inscription. Here it is, and you can see all of the reliefs there. And then these tablets, and it's written in three different languages. It's the Persian version of the Rosetta Stone, okay? Three different languages, all describing Darius's coming to power, how he came to power. He describes himself as the great-great-nephew uh, of Cyrus, uh, a great-grandson to Cyrus's, uh, the great's brother. He married two of Cyrus's daughters and that Bardia, uh, this, guy, this guy who was a king for maybe a second or two, and Darius took him over. And the question that scholars still debate is, did he kill him? Did he not? Was there, what, what shenanigans were going on there? Because it's not certain exactly what happened there. But he marries that guy's daughter. Is all of that true? Is he the murderer of Bardia? We, we, we don't know, but the point is, is this is the information we've got. And kind of like the, the old adage that uh, those who are the victors write the history, uh, that's what we've got, okay? So this is Darius's inscription. Um, let me back up here just to say, this inscription is 125 feet by 120 feet in length. That's, that's massive. Uh, in 1846, there was a British guy named Henry Rawlinson, who, a great uh, ancient Near Eastern scholar, who sought to decipher the Behistun inscription. And here he is, walking on this little ledge, trying to get down all of the, 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 uh, um, the letters so that he could get this translated, you know. It's, man, you think that scholars just sit in their uh, ivory towers uh, studying stuff, he, he had to actually work, didn't he? Um, he uh, this Darius is the one who saved the Persian Empire. He's the one who is in charge of the world, but God is in charge of him. Understand that. Uh, by the way, this Darius is not the Darius of Daniel 6. You know, Darius, came, uh, the Mede of Daniel in the lion's den. Not the same guy. He came earlier than this Darius. And there are going to be two more Dariuses in, who, who end up becoming Persian kings. So the name Darius is a pretty common name. So don't get confused by that. So that's the first person we want to talk about. Then in chapter 5, verse 1, we're introduced to a guy named Haggai. Um, many of you pronounce it Haggai. I have no idea where that pronunciation came from, um, but that's the more common pronunciation in English, I guess. But you'll notice in, in Haggai chapter 1, verse 2, it says that he is prophesying in the second year of Darius in the sixth month. So that's that 520 BC, okay? Right after Darius is issued, 
the edict that they can, continue, they can re, resume the rebuilding of the temple at Jerusalem, Haggai is giving his prophecy. And here's something that's interesting. What's interesting is when you look at Ezra and you compare it to Haggai, what you see is in Ezra, it seems like the hindrances to revival are all external. Oh, there's an edict to stop the rebuilding and we got to deal with the government and the Persian bureaucracy and all of that, right? But in Haggai, what we read is a little bit of a different picture that the problem for revival is also internal. People had come back. They're building fancy houses for themselves. They don't really care about God's temple. And in Haggai, we read this. How can you live in your paneled houses, your highly decorated, refurbished, beautiful homes, while God's house lies in ruin? Consider your ways is a repeated phrase of Haggai chapter 1. How do you live in your nicely appointed homes while the Lord's house lies in ruin? So Haggai is here at this renewal of the rebuilding. And he's talking about personal internal matters more than he is the external political ones. And then the other person we're introduced to here in chapter 5 verse 1 is Zechariah. And Zechariah chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that he begins his ministry in the second year of Darius in the eighth month. So two months after Haggai starts his ministry, Zechariah begins his. And he describes that there's going to be a coming king. And in chapter 9 he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And that verse that we read at the beginning of the service, it's so beautiful. How great is his goodness. How great his beauty. You know, Zechariah is causing this idea of revival to be Behold your God. Look at who God is. And he says, I'll bring them home in Zechariah 10. And there'll be glory and a mourning, a, 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 a weeping that brings salvation in chapter 12. And then there's the return of the Lord as king in chapter 14. So not only do you have the political issues that are going on in Ezra, but you have the internal issues of personal kind of uh, interest in their own thing, building their nice houses for themselves in Haggai. And then in Zechariah, what he's wanting the people to do is take a look at your God. Don't look at your pretty house. Look at your God. You see. We're introduced to another person here in Ezra chapter 5, Zerubbabel. It says, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God. Zerubbabel was the grandson of King Jehoiakim, of the kingly line, mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. And in Ezra, he's always paired with this Jeshua, or Jeshua. So, Zerubbabel is of the kingly line, and Jeshua is the priest. He's the priest of God. And so what we're encountering here in a remarkable way, is notice what it says in verse 2, Zerubbabel, Jeshua began to rebuild, and the prophets of God were with them, that is Haggai and Zechariah, supporting them. So what do you have? You have someone from the kingly line, someone who's a priest, and the prophets, prophet, priest, king. This is God's work 
God is the one who causes revival. God starts revival. But he uses his servants, these men, who know God and how to work in this world to start revival. Now, Darius takes the throne and there was a lot of, uh, in those first two years of his reign, there was a lot of turmoil. Uh, I read once that there were like 19 different provinces rebelled against him. So he had to deal with a lot of problems. But when he got all those settled, he allows the Jews to begin rebuilding. And then in verses 3 and 4, we have a new governor at the province beyond the river. His name's Tatanai. And Tatanai and this Shethar Bozanai, they come to the people doing the rebuilding and they say these questions. Uh, who gave you the decree to rebuild and to finish this temple? And we need a list of names. <laughs> now, whenever the government comes and asks, what are you doing? And let, give me your names. That's a little bit of an intimidation, isn't it? It causes people to go, whoa, what's happening? Uh, and maybe the goal of those questions was to intimidate. But I'm going to suggest to you, based on verse 5 of chapter 5, that it might just be that the government, this governor, needed to know in order to be able to check it out. And the reason why I say that is, Tatanai, the governor, allowed them to continue rebuilding while he sent a letter back to Darius to say, hey, is this legitimate what's going on here? You know, sometimes we have such a skepticism of government, we think that they're always up to no good. And that's often true but it is not always true, right? Not always true. Let's not lose sight of the bigger issues. God's people always face enemies when they're on the move for God. If we don't face opposition, friends, we should worry. We should worry that we are not on the move for God as we ought to be. You don't find any opposition in your life? That's a moment to be concerned about your zeal. Where am I with the Lord? Quite often we applaud ourselves for not rebelling against God. Hey, I'm not actively rebelling against God. And we applaud ourselves for being able to live the life that we're living in more or less uh, how we want it to happen. That's not enough for revival. That's not enough. In revival, there is a disquietness of soul that drives us to the pursuit of God. And persecution often can be that instrument of disquietness that drives us to the pursuit of God. And that leads to a boldness for God that's almost guaranteed to bring opposition from somewhere, right? If we're bold for God, sooner or later there's going to be someone opposing that. Verse 5, I love this verse. The eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And they, that is this Tatnai and Shethar Bozani, they didn't stop them until the report should reach Darius and an answer be given back about what's going on. You know, we can't win in our own strength. We need the eye of God upon us. It's not going to be by some... Uh, 
political machination or if we just figure out ways to get out the vote better or something like that. We, we need the eye of our God upon us if we're to see revival. And we can't discount the importance of God's people worshiping together. These opponents were fine with the people worshiping in the privacy of their homes. Hey, go ahead and build a nice house. No opposition there. The opponents were against the temple being rebuilt. In fact, I think at least one of the key ideas behind Haggai's whole ministry was to prophesy that the worship in the comfort of your own home idea is crazy. It takes courage to continue in the pursuit of God. Forsaking sin and lesser things, a boldness to give up personal comfort for public worship, to the extent that the ordinary interests of life are no longer as important as worshiping together. And that it impacts things like where we spend our money and how we spend our time and what we do with our calendars and even the pursuits that we find so all-consuming It requires a courage, does it not, to attach one's name to God's. Yes, there is a need for courage to continue the pursuit of God. Now let's look at this letter. And we will see the memory of God's work as a means to revival. Remembering how God has worked in the past as a means to present Revival. So, Tatanai sends this letter to Darius, and the purpose of the writing is, um, you know, I want to know what you think. You know, the temple's being rebuilt, verses 6 to 8. Uh, we've asked these guys for information, that's verses 9 and 10. Who is it that authorized this rebuilding, and who are you? What are your names? And so, Tatanai writes this, and then in his letter, he also records the response of these fellows who were doing the rebuilding. Look at verses 11 to 16, because of 11 to 16 is the Jewish response to Tatanai's requests. And this was their reply to us. Their being the Jews, to us being uh, Tatanai and Shethar Bozanai. And here's what the Jews said to Tatanai. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. Stop right there. A great answer to any question is to begin with God. A great answer to any question is to begin with God. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. And I want you to notice that they are not afraid to take on the prevailing theology of the day. The prevailing theology throughout the Persian Empire was all gods are local. And so there's this region and they have their God and their temple and this region and they have their God and their temple and they have this region and their God and their temple and each god is responsible for the spiritual oversight of their respective territories. Notice in their response, they're giving a counter-cultural response. We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. <laughs> this is the one true God. 
That's a radical idea for, the, for its time. They aren't afraid to take on the all gods or local idea. And by the way, you know, don't you, that the all gods or local idea still prevails? It's just in a little bit of a different form. Have you ever had someone when you've described, well, here's what the Bible says about God and his ways, and they go, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Your God may believe such and so or say such and so, but my God would never say, and then fill in the blank of whatever it is they say, that's just another version of the all gods are local idea. And these guys are bold enough to say, we are servants of God, of the God of heaven and earth. Um, how dare we say, for example, that some people will go to heaven and some people will go to hell? How dare we say that? The answer to that question is to begin by saying, I am the servant of the God of heaven and earth. And this is what he says. Your disagreement is not with me. It is with him. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be arrogant or prideful, because look at verse 12. Notice that they reveal their national sin with humility. In their reply, they start with God, but then they say, but because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. Notice, these folks, these followers of the true God, are not triumphalists, insisting that they know better or that they live better than other people. Rather, they are saying, we are actually more accountable to the, God, to the true God because of our relationship to Him, and we have utterly failed. You see, that's not a position of saying we're know-it-alls and we've got it all together. It's saying, we've blown it beyond all hope other than the grace of God. Verses 13 to 15, the Jews in their response to Tatanai's questions explain how Cyrus decreed the rebuilding. This is a compelling declaration of the appreciation of grace. They say, the first year of Cyrus, Cyrus made a decree that this house should be rebuilt. Of course, it's the grace of Cyrus the king in changing Persian foreign policy, but also behind it, the grace of Almighty God. We can never proclaim grace too much. The Jews know they don't deserve it. They don't deserve their temple rebuilt, but God orchestrated the hand of the king of Persia, Cyrus the Great, to issue a decree to rebuild and to restore the vessels that had been taken from the temple at Jerusalem, that's grace. Now, grace does not mean that sin gets a pass. Grace means that in spite of obvious sin and wrong, God has found a way to reconcile us to him. Now, in verse 16, there is this... Uh, explanation of a fellow by the name of Sheshbazar and his role in the leadership of this rebuilding matter. It says, 
this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it's been in building and it's not yet finished. You see, these Jews are not afraid to tell the truth of what they've been up to. Sometimes when you think that there's going to be opposition, you want to waffle a little bit on your answers. You want to weasel a little bit, don't you? You want to say, well, yeah, we were rebuilding, but it wasn't a bad rebuilding. It was a good rebuilding, and we're nice, and we're okay, and don't bother us, and please, please be nice to us. No, they just tell the truth. Don't apologize for being a Christian. Some churches, it seems, are afraid of saying what they believe for fear of turning people off. Now, of course, we should not ever be in the business of deliberately provoking people, as some actually seem to enjoy doing, but neither are we ashamed of what we believe. The Jews clearly explain what's happened, but they're not trying to poke the eye of Darius here. But they're not afraid to say what's happened and that the work of the temple's not yet actually completed and that they want it to be finished. So now in verse 17, we return to Tatanai's words. <clears throat> and Tatanai says, the Jewish report here, uh, now I'd like a records request. I would like you to search the royal archives, see if there was a decree issued by Cyrus for the rebuilding of this house of God. And then, king, please send us your pleasure on this matter. Now, this is a different from the, the request that we saw back in chapter 4, verse 5, which had stopped the work in the temple for 10 years. It's different from the requests that we're going to see later on that are recorded in chapter 4, verses 8 to 16, which are yet future in time to what's going on here in chapter 5. But Tatanai is simply asking that the royal archives be searched while they continue rebuilding for a decree by Cyrus on the rebuilding of the temple. Now, what kind of applications do we draw from such a such text? First, here is an example of a situation where there could have been distrust of government, but it would have been misplaced. And I think that we ought to hold with a little bit of an open hand just automatically assuming that when government asks for information, that they're up to no good. Now, that sometimes they are. In chapter 4, they were. But in chapter 5, they're not. So let's be careful that we don't have our automatic skepticism be put into gear. Second application. The world that my grandson inherits is a difficult world indeed. But by God's grace, my prayer is that Peter will have such an immense awareness of both the goodness and the beauty of the Lord that if revival comes, he's ready. And if revival doesn't come, he's ready. That we are ready to meet whatever happens because we are people who know our God. That we have a memory of God's work as a means to revival. Now that leads to a question that I want to conclude this message on, and it's an important one. It's one you may have asked yourself. How will I know when I am revived? How will I know when I personally am experiencing revival? And I'll give you five ways that you can know. 
First, your affections change. Your awareness of both God's holiness and God's love become all-consuming so that the things that you were so affectionate and hungering toward no longer mean hardly anything to you compared to your pursuit of God. Your affections change. Second test of revival, your attitude toward sin changes. You despise sin, most especially in yourself, and repent. You become deeply aware as you think of the Lord's goodness and beauty of your own vileness and ugliness in sin and you say to God, oh God, what grace is it that you would forgive me of my sin? And your attitude towards sin changes rather than making excuses either to others or to your own self. Oh yeah, well, that's just the way it is or that's how I am or whatever. You're now saying, I want to be rid of it. I want to forsake it. Thirdly, your use of your time and substance change. How you spend your time and your money is altered by this all-consuming pursuit of God. Fourthly, your love for God's people grows. Oh, it's always true that God's people love some of God's people. <laughs> right? Oh, I love him and her and him and her. Yeah, these people not so much. When revival happens, your love for God's people is so expansive, it's amazing. And that's why when revival comes, people are like attracted. They got to see this. What is this that people who should not get along together are absolutely in love and affection for one another because their love and affection for God are at an unbelievable crescendo. And then lastly, your longing to know more, know more of God, know more of his word, to love more, to reach out to people with the love of God so that they might know this God that you are coming to know and to be more, to have your character shaped and molded, to be like the very character of Jesus Christ, grows. Your longing to know more, love more, and be more increases. This is how you will know when you are revived. Now it is God who starts revival, but he uses his servants who know God and how to work in this world to accomplish his purpose. By God's grace, will you tell God, by your grace, God, allow me to be that man or woman. Allow me to be that boy or girl that would have such affection for you. Let's pray. Now, God, we quiet our souls right now because as we reflect on these ways in which we know when we're revived, we say we're not, we're, we're not there. And we pray you would forgive us. And ask for your grace in doing a work in us that is not something that we can, by 
some process of determination accomplished. Change our affections. Help us to see your goodness and your beauty. May our awareness of your holiness and your love become all-consuming. Change our attitude towards sin so that we're no longer excuse-making and hiding, but that we would despise it in ourselves and turn to you. Help us in the use of our time and our substance. Help our love for your people to grow and help us to know more, love more, and be more for you. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's never put their faith and hope in Christ, teach them right now by your Holy Spirit that they need to have life in you in order to have that revival. And that they would say, Lord Jesus, you came to this world and you died on the cross as the only sacrifice for my sin. I trust what you did at that cross to forgive me of my sin and to pay the penalty for my sin. And you rose again. And so, Lord, I pray you would do that work in transforming my life. I turn from my sin and I turn toward you, God. Grant to me the eternal life you promise. And Lord, would you bring revival to us as individuals, to our church, to our community, and to our world. In Jesus' name, amen.